Good morning. How are you? Okay, above average. You all look above average this morning. Quick question. What are we doing here this morning? Why are we here? I was wondering the same thing, Pastor. Maybe you could tell me. Please tell me what to think. I checked my... No, you didn't check your brains at the door. You brought them with you, and I know that. What are we doing here? To worship... Yeah, to worship our Creator. Okay. Because why? We love Him, right? We love Him because He first loved us. Yeah. And why do we love Him? He loved us first. Yeah. He reached out to us. He found us. He rescued us from sin, brought us out of the pit of our own, the prison of our own selfishness and foolishness. And what's his plan for us? I was hoping you'd have the answer to that one. (laughs) What does God want for us? I'll give you you a clue. We've been talking about it the past couple of months this Ephesians thing that your pastor's been kind of obsessed with the last little while? What's, what's God's idea? What's he trying to put together with this? You're my favorite mob. Did you know that? You are. You're my favorite mob in the world. You're a fairly friendly mob, at least unless the sermon goes too long, then you get a little twitchy. But you are my favorite mob. What is God's plan? What's his desire for this mob? We tell others about him, yeah. Family, yeah. The Creator has rescued us and adopted us into his family. His family is characterized by love. God's unconditional love. God's love cannot be explained on a human level. It makes no sense at all. That's what grace is like. God's unlimited favor to very undeserving and rebellious human beings. Okay? We all tend to go off course. We all want to do our own thing. And yet, God loves us. And he's rescued us and brought, it in, brought us into his family. And that's a beautiful thing. So, as we... Uh, have been going through Ephesians, we've been learning that we have a new identity as God's beloved children and that works its way out and the way we look at each other, there's no racial or social walls between Christians anymore, those are all broken down, God's building a new community out of us, his beloved children. And that changes the way that we live, it changes the personal choices that we make. It changes our relationships. It changes our marriages, the way we parent, our family relationships, our work relationships. It changes our personal ethics, the way we live, the way we spend our money, our, our sexual relationships. All these things, this new identity affects all these things and changes them for the better. So giddy up. We're going to just trip onto eternity through meadows filled with daisies and sunshine and it's going to be really sweet from here on in. 
Mais... Okay, what are the, all the cynical chuckles? Are, not cynical, just wry chuckles. Yeah, right. We have an enemy. That's not meant to scare you. It's just meant to inject some reality into you. Because God created the church to be his, demonst- his demonstration project, his special creation, to demonstrate to the powers, the evil powers in the cosmos, that his plan wins. Way back in the beginning of time, Satan usurped, he snuck, he stole God's kingdom. He tried to get human beings to follow their own way. Sin came into the creation and ruined it. Absolutely, totally messed things up. But God has rescued us. He's called us for being messed up to masterpieces. And he's making something beautiful. He's recreating in us the most unlikely people on the planet. Do you think it's unlikely that you're here today in God's kingdom? I hope so. I mean, not to cast aspersions on anyone, not to make you feel bad about yourself, but isn't it great to be an unlikely adoptee into God's family? Sweet. That's a good thing. I hope that stirs something in your heart to think, I can't believe he picked me out of the crowd. Beautiful. So he's got a plan. And it says in Ephesians chapter 3 that through the church, that little phrase, through the church, God is demonstrating his great and wonderful and wise and beautiful plan to rebuild and recreate the cosmos the way it should have been in the first place. And we're in the middle of that. A few weeks ago, out of Revelation 21, we took a sneak peek at the end of the book to see how the story ends. And it is sweet. It is really beautiful. You've got people from all possible ethnicities and backgrounds gathering together to worship Jesus. And it's like, ah, God reigns. It's beautiful. We're not there yet. We are on the way. So, what I want us to take away this morning from our last visit with Ephesians is the reality that those of us who follow Jesus are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle. The original title I gave the sermon was Get in the Game, which is kind of cute, kind of funny. Then I realized as I was preparing, nah, this means war. This means war. We didn't go looking for a fight when we started following Jesus, but as soon as you start following Jesus, you can expect spiritual opposition. Why? We have a spiritual enemy who hates God. Why does Satan hate God? Because he wanted to be number one. That led him to getting booted out of heaven in the first place. He deceived a bunch of angels. They followed him, and and life has been chaotic ever since then. Any human being who is reconciled to God the Father and adopted into his family has got a target, has got a bullseye on their head because God hates, sorry, Satan hates God's children. There's enmity between God and Satan. And we're a little bit caught in the middle as his children. It's not to scare you, it's just to give you a heads up. Every follower of Jesus is engaged in spiritual battle, whether you want to or not. 
How many people are familiar with the story, The Lord of the Rings? Anybody familiar with that? You've seen the movie, you read the books. I, you know, my first year of university, I discovered this trilogy, and I confess I spent a lot more time reading Tolkien than studying chemistry. I just kind of inhaled it. And I was pretty happy when the movies came out. And there's one scene in the middle of the book, in the middle book that I want to talk about. There's a, a certain kingdom that is under attack by the enemy. And the king, King Theoden, doesn't really want to face reality. He's afraid of getting involved. He's afraid of his people getting hurt more. And he says in this council of war that they're having, he says, I will not risk open war. He doesn't want to really get involved. He's, he's trying to escape the reality that there's trouble. And the hero of the story, Aragorn, challenges him, stands up to the king and says, open war is upon you whether you wish it or not. He's basically saying, gear up, king. You're in a fight. You didn't pick this fight, but this fight has found you. So saddle up and lead your people. That's kind of the situation for us. We didn't really choose this spiritual battle, but it has found us because we identify with Jesus. So if we're in it, we might as well open our eyes and learn how to fight. But we're going to learn who our enemy is exactly, what our equipment is, and what our strategy is. So follow closely as I read this. Jesus wants us to know our enemy, to know our equipment, and to know our strategy. This is from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Paul is saying, be strengthened in the Lord. You can't fight these spiritual battles. I don't know if you're aware of what I'm talking about, but if you sense sometimes you're trying to make a move forward in following God, maybe you're trying to develop a consistent devotional life, or you're trying to tell friends and family about the difference Jesus is making in your life, or you just wonder why sometimes the wind seems to be always blowing in your face when you're trying to make spiritual progress. There was one day, I think Thursday afternoon, I was cycling home from work. My goodness, it was so windy, I almost felt like I was on a stationary bike. It's kind of frustrating when you're grunting away and you're, this, you're always, in Winnipeg, you're always biking into the wind. But it was an exceptionally bad day. And I came home and just conked out on the couch and I think worried Luann a little bit. That's kind of what this spiritual headwind is. And you're wondering, why is it so hard to follow Jesus? I thought that when I came to Jesus, my problems would be all over. And your problems with God are all over, which is good. But what that means is that we become a target for the enemy because the enemy hates God's children. So don't be surprised if things seem to start going off the road a little bit. Or things are difficult. Things are challenging. Part of it's our human nature. That's what the Bible calls the flesh. Part of it is the, just the society we're in, which is not favorably disposed towards people who follow Jesus. And part of it is, are the spiritual forces that are against us that whisper in the, our ears saying, you're no good. You're no good. God doesn't care. He doesn't love you. If the other people at church knew what you were doing, 
they were being appalled. You should be ashamed of yourself. Who do you think you are? The whole thing is a giant cosmic joke. You're a loser. Why would you ever want to follow Jesus? God can't forgive you for that. He might forgive other people, but he can't forgive you. Now, likely, none of you have ever heard those negative messages. Maybe, maybe not. Those things don't come from the Holy Spirit. They come from an unholy spirit and trying to drag you down. That's why Paul is saying, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. If you're having a hard time as a Christian, if you're having a challenging time, your issue is not other human beings. It's not your boss. It's not your spouse. It's not your children or your parents or your other extended family. It's not even that irritating neighbor that does those things that drives you crazy. It's not. Our enemy is the rulers and the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul's talking about demonic forces, okay? Now I know in the Western worldview, this is all kind of fairy tales and we don't have a space in our grid for this. I found that out when I went to seminary and took counseling courses and I encountered something in our local church that didn't really fit the psychology books I had been reading about and strange things were happening that I was hearing about and my professor didn't have a grid. He's a good man, smart man, and a godly man, but the Western worldview so pervades the Western church, we're not aware of these things. And unfortunately, we send missionaries over to other parts of the world who get hammered spiritually because they don't know how to deal with this. Now, fortunately, the church is recovering its capacity the Western Church is recovering its capacity to realize that our struggle primarily is not against human beings. It's against the unseen spiritual forces of darkness. And that's what Paul is trying to warn his people about. They already know it's a reality. If you read the story of the church in Ephesus, wow, go check out the book in Acts, of Acts and read about the, the, the church in Ephesus all the spiritual turmoil that went on there that cannot be explained just by human opposition. Anyway, Paul's saying, this is, this is what we're up against. So he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes or when the really tough spiritual challenges come, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Standing is a military term, meaning that um, the picture is of a group of soldiers defending a piece of ground, all right? Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now we're getting into the equipment. It would be absolutely criminal to send people out to war without proper equipment. In World War I, Canadian troops were initially equipped with the Ross rifle that was Canadian-made and manufactured. It was an absolute disaster. And they had to be re-equipped with Lee Enfield proper, a proper rifle because this, this Ross rifle would jam at all the wrong times. It just didn't work well. So it was almost criminal what we did 
to those fellows in, um, in the first uh, few years of battle. They finally got the right equipment. When my boys played hockey, can you imagine what mean hockey officials were? They said, you got to wear a helmet on the ice. You got to wear a mouth guard. You got to wear a neck protector. What a bunch of legalists. Picky, picky, picky. I'm so glad for rules. And I can't tell you how many times we got to the rink. Dad, I forgot my helmet. I forgot my mouth guard. I forgot my neck guard. Dad, I forgot my skates. You forgot your skates. It's a hockey game. Anyway, they, we, we learned. It was a good parenting moment because we learned about consequences. And they became in charge of their own equipment and it lowered my blood pressure and they enjoy the game a lot better. But you can imagine you can't play hockey without proper equipment. You cannot engage successfully in spiritual warfare with the, the right equipment. So let's unpack what Paul's talking about. We start with the belt of truth. Roman soldiers, um, they would kind of gather in their tunics. That's where the biblical term gird up your loins comes from. They gather in their tunics and they'd have a belt to strap their equipment on. Now belts aren't very glamorous, but they're really important. I can't imagine um, going to work or doing construction work or um, going to battle or playing a game of football with one hand devoted to pulling up your pants all the time. It's just not. And that would be terribly embarrassing to uh, go out into battle or wrestling and your pants are down around your ankles. You need that. Why is it the belt of truth? Because truth is foundational. We've been talking about garments, foundational garments. Right? Truth is foundational. Okay? It gives us that sense of security. It's the truth of the gospel. It refers to doctrinal truth, the truth of what we believe about Jesus, as well as living a truthful life, living a life of integrity. If you put those two things together, doctrinal truth and a life of integrity, you've got a good foundation for spiritual warfare. Because the devil sneaks in and he tries to tell you lies and you say, uh uh uh, that's not true. When these evil whispers come at us and say, uh uh uh, that's not true. And these accusations come against us. We say, wait, God's helped me living a life of integrity. That that doesn't apply to me. And the flaming arrows of the enemy, we'll talk about them in a minute. They're they're deflected. Then we put on a breastplate of righteousness. Roman soldiers would wear this armor plate on the front and the back to protect the vital organs. It's not very good to get something pointy and sharp stuck into here. That's kind of debilitating. So to protect the torso, you wore a breastplate. Now it's described as a breastplate of righteousness, which means that who makes us right before God? wait a minute, I thought it was me. I've been to church all my life. I learned a lot of verses in Sunday school and I can really kick everybody's butt in the Bible drill. I know where everything is. I can win all those sword drills we did in Sunday school. Find this verse, blah, blah, blah. I know a lot of stuff. Is that what my righteousness is based on? Good. I see a subtle few... And that, that's good. Our righteousness is based on what Jesus has done for us, right? 
which is brilliant because you want that kind of armor if you're in a fierce, a fierce spiritual battle. You want that high-tech armor. You want spiritual Kevlar on, right? So according to Jesus, if he has made us right with God, any accusation of the enemy, you know, God couldn't forgive you for that. You're such a loser. Well, I know I'm a loser, but God's adopted me, so get lost. And ping, you know, it bounces off the Kevlar. So this breastplate of righteousness is really important that we, that we acquire it and appreciate it and we put it on. The Bible says in the beginning of this passage, it says, be strong in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. But we also have to put on the armor. That means we appreciate it. We know it's there. We know how to use it. I didn't play hockey as a kid. I can barely skate, as some of you know. And it took me a little while to figure out how to get all the equipment on properly so it was comfortable and functional. You have to put it on. It's not enough just to have go to an equipment with an equipment bag, do a hockey game, and saying, "I'm ready, coach. Put me in the game." You got to put it on. So, as Christians, when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, that means, "Hey, I'm trusting in what Jesus has done for me." Okay, I got the Kevlar on, and if the enemy comes and tells me that God couldn't forgive me for whatever sin I've done, I go to the Bible. And I remind myself, hey, wait a minute. Jesus died for me. He's forgiven me for sins past, present, and future. And if I go and confess my sins, he's righteous and just, faithful and just to forgive all of my sin. Not just 98.6%, but all of my sin. That's how you put on the breastplate of righteousness. And it protects you. Also, if you live a life of integrity... It's another way of putting on the breastplate, right? Because, you know, the evil one cannot pin anything on us. So that's the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, What have we got? Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I like to call these gospel boots. Roman soldiers would wear sandals that were, had hobnails. There, there were metal studs in the soles that gave you really good traction. <clears throat> I played my first high school football game in a pair of North Star running shoes. You know what those used to be like? Really cheap. I couldn't afford real nice Adidas running shoes. They, these were the cheapy Kmart specials. No traction, no cleats, no treads, and I got hammered. But I saved up my money from working all summer and I got myself a pair of cleats with awesome traction. It was amazing. Didn't matter what the field conditions were, I was ready to go. Footing is so much a part of your game when you're playing a contact sport like that. And Roman soldiers knew that. They needed proper footwear. Now these gospel boots that Paul's talking about, it's like being ready when you're wrestling and, and fighting. This is hand-to-hand combat we're in. There's no smart bombs in spiritual warfare. It's, it's hand-to-hand, okay? Your, your stance, your, your um, ability to move quickly could be life and death. So it's really important to have this footwear on. 
And that what that Paul is trying to refer to, this, this readiness to share the gospel, just being aware of what God is doing in people's lives and knowing how to just plant a seed and plant a kind word and pray and intercede for people, it's a great way of fighting back. See, we're not always on the, we're not always on the defensive. Sometimes we're taking the, be- the offense as well. And sometimes the best defense is a good offense. So the way we break down the, the, the enemy strongholds, we pray for people. We find someone to pray for. And the, the gospel boots take us places. You know, where will the gospel take you? Are you ready to move? Are you ready to respond when you see someone just kind of spiritually curious? And you, if you ask people, for, if you ask God for opportunities to share Jesus with people, they'll come your way. You won't have to strive. You won't have to make things happen. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I miss the boat? You'll learn. You'll learn. Listen to the Holy Spirit. That's what the day of Pentecost is all about. That's what we've been singing about. Fill me, Holy Spirit. It's not just a blah, 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 nice songs. It's spiritual reality, right? So God gives us this ability and he gives us equipment to respond to opportunities to share the gospel with people. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The Roman shield was quite large. It was about, um, it was an oblong shape. It was two and a half feet wide and about four feet high. So it could cover most of your body. And it was designed especially to uh, put out flaming arrows. That was a nasty technical development in the first century. People, the enemy, if you really wanted to scare out your opponent, you would take an arrow and dip it in pitch or some kind of flammable material. You set it on fire and then you'd set someone else on fire. Terrifying, terrifying weapon. So the Romans got onto this and they designed their shields not to uh, catch flame, to be kind of impervious to flaming missiles. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Take up a shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Those flaming arrows are some of those accusations I've been whispering to you this morning, right? When Satan wants to drag us down and attack us and and just take away our will to resist. The shield of faith, now it doesn't depend on how great our faith is, but faith in someone. It's not about how much faith I have. It's about all about who I'm putting my faith in, Okay? Do I put my faith in politicians? Maybe. Some good ones, anyway. I'd tell you a few that I will not name this morning that I wouldn't put my faith in. But if I put my faith in God, if I put my faith in God and how He feels about me and the truth that He states about me, all these flaming arrows, these accusations, these whispers, you know... God can't answer your prayers. He only answers prayers for other people. So give it up. Don't persevere in prayer. Give it up. Give up hope. Why don't you just pack it in? It's not worth it. These are the flaming arrows that come at us. But the shield of faith, we hold it up and say, No! God's in charge. I love the echoes in here. 
It's awesome. God's in charge, right? I put my faith in him, and ping, you can't touch me. It's not so much about how much faith I have. It's who I have the faith in, okay? Remember that. Incidentally, we are stronger together. Romans designed their shields to fit together into a shield wall that was very effective in close combat. Notice how effective it is when Christians band their faith together. I think it's a multiplier effect. It does. Take the helmet of salvation. You've got to protect the old melon, right? The helmet of salvation protects, you know, blows to the head are kind of debilitating. Uh, know that from personal experience. Um, and it means we, what we've already received from God, being saved from sin. It can also refer to our ultimate long-term hope of when our salvation is fully complete. But basically, it, it's our ultimate hope is God finishing his work of completely redeeming us and completely rebuilding us into what he intends us to be. And that protects our head. It protects us. One more weapon. Most of these weapons so far have been mostly defensive, which is good. We need protection. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is both an a defensive and an offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Two-edged swords were really dangerous because you can use your forehand and your backhand and you can just imagine the chaos you can create with a two-edged sword. The Word of God is more powerful than that. The two-edged sword in its day was kind of the ultimate in technology. And the, the Roman sword des- described here is about 18 inches long. It was really used, designed for close-in combat. It wasn't the big uh, Braveheart two-hander thing. This, was, this, was, this Roman sword was designed for close-in dirty work, so to speak. And that's the power of the Word of God. It gets us. It pricks our conscience. It, 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 it cuts the wheat from the chaff. It, it destroys our self-important arguments that there is no God and there's no accountability for me. It doesn't matter how I live. All these things, it just, it just severs that. It, gets right, it cuts right to the heart. And if you've ever read the Word of God and it's gone, <gasps> ooh, okay, Lord, I get it. Now, God doesn't do that to annihilate us, you know, through the word of God, but he can prick our conscience. He makes us go, oh, okay, Lord, I get it. I get it. I get what I'm supposed to do. It also builds us up and makes us powerful, right? That's why the word of God is so powerful. And we need to know it. We need to take it into our spirit. We need to live in it. We need to marinate in it. Not just put up a few verses on our bumper stickers or walls, I, I guess that could be helpful. But if we live it out, man, I would rather meet a Christian driver who lives out the gospel than has got it plastered on his bumper sticker, on his bumper. So let the word of God soak into us and then we can use it 
as a weapon to accomplish God's purposes. So how do we do this? We've got, we know who our enemy is, the dark spiritual forces in the world. We know what our equipment is. How are we supposed to use it? Paul continues on, and you can help me read these verses. Let's read this together. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions. You do the capital part, and I'll do the small part, okay? And pray in the Spirit on occasions with kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for the Lord's people. You get it? Pretty good plan, eh? God has so designed the universe, we conquer with him. We win with him when we depend on his strength. We put on this equipment for the fight. And how do we fight? We pray. You're thinking, that sounds weird, Rick. Aren't we supposed to go into action and do stuff? Of course we are. But our action is dictated to, is guided and empowered by prayer. Prayer makes us dependent on God. God, I don't know what to do in this situation. God, I don't have the strength for this. God, what the dickens is going on? What am I supposed to do here? That's prayer. That's good. That's desperation prayer. I think some of us do our best praying when we're desperate. Lord, I'm at the end of my rope. And he says, perfect. Now we can get somewhere. All right? Stop depending on your own cleverness, your own ability, your own wisdom. Lean in on me, and we'll get some things done. That's how we fight. That's how we fight spiritually. We pray. Here's an example. Paul is so kind to say, incidentally, guys, this is how you can fight for me spiritually. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Do you remember where Paul was located when he wrote this book? He was in prison. Okay, he was in death row. When people are in death row, I would pay attention to what they're saying because they're pretty close to the end. And they're not worried about hockey scores or, I don't know, what's on Facebook or whatever. They're, they're interested in pretty serious life and death stuff. So Paul says, finally, most of all, one more thing. Let me highlight this. Every follower of Jesus is engaged in spiritual battle. It's reality. But the good news is he, we can know our enemy, we can know our equipment, we can know our strategy, and ultimately we win if we work to, together with him and do things his way. It's our responsibility to use every piece of equipment available to us. It's our responsibility. And many of us are wondering, why is following Jesus so hard? There have been times, I confess to you, where I felt I'd been buffeted and blown all over the place. And I've sensed God saying to me, Rick, pick up your sword and get in the fight, man. You're just getting wailed on and beaten on. Stand up and fight. Stand up in my strength and fight. Fight for yourself. Fight for your church. Fight for your family. Not fight with yourself or fight with your wife or fight with your church. Fight for them. 
fight for them. I'd like to give us a little challenge today. I want us to learn how to fight spiritually. And I want us to think about these boots, these gospel boots that we wear, that we've been given, this readiness to share the gospel. I'm going to ask us now to think of one person in our life, just ask God to show us one person in our life that we can pray for, that we can bless. We're not going to pray, oh God, let all kinds of terrible things happen to Harry so that he comes into your family. We're not going to pray that way. But we are going to pray, Lord, bless Harry. Bless him. Shower your love on him. And as I interact with Harry, I pray that you give me opportunity to share the good news about Jesus with him. But ask God to put someone on your heart right now to pray for, and then we'll do that. So, as much as possible, if you're able, let's everyone close their eyes, and let's just, let's just quietly talk to God and say, Lord, who have you got in mind? Okay? That's our exercise today. Lord, I pray that you'd show each one of us here someone that we can pray for, that we can intercede for, so they can be adopted into your family too. Now, if someone immediately comes to mind and you think, oh no, that's too hard, that's crazy, it's probably the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, take a leap of faith and pray for that person, okay? And maybe you can't think of anyone specifically yet, that's okay, just as you go home, you can, you can ask God for that. And now, let's intercede for these people, all right? Let's pray. Father, this building is full of unlikely people who are adopted into your family. And as we pray for people that seem more unlikely to follow you, nothing's too hard for you, God. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is impossible with God. And as we use the sword of the Spirit to pray, I pray that you would draw people to yourself. These people you put in our hearts, help us to pray for them consistently and daily and to live out the gospel in front of them. Father, I pray that you'd honor these prayers. We're happy, so happy to say you can do anything and nothing is impossible with you. So we commit this to you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.